The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Recession risks rising. Concerning comments from Carl Icahn on just how bad things could get, but not everyone is convinced. Especially overseas, stocks in Asia surging on yet another big tech dividend boost. $125 oil. President Biden set to unveil new sanctions on Russia as he heads to Europe. This is the White House shores up trade ties with some old allies. Do we need a World War II rebuilding plan for energy? Jamie Dimon thinks so. We'll tell you what he's proposing. And apparently diamond hands are forever. Shares of GameStop and some old trader favorites surging once again on this Wednesday, March 23rd. This is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. And as always, welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. All right, let's get right to it on this Wednesday morning. Here's how your money in the markets are setting up their day. And stock futures, they are mildly lower right now, not by much, down about two-tenths of 1% across the major indexes. This coming off a solid Tuesday, the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ all rose. In fact, the NASDAQ plowing ahead nearly 2% higher. Oil, once again, seems to be driving the stock market. Once again, it was stocks rising when oil goes down and maybe vice versa today. We had oil drop below 110 yesterday and stock move higher. But right now, oil is moving back up. It is back above 110, which maybe is why stock futures are lower. By the way, speaking of oil, look at that. Today is your monthly contract roll. So why don't we look out not only at the current month, but at the next few months to see how the market is pricing in futures. And maybe a little good news out there is that you can see as we look out at May and July and August, the price is coming down. So the market may be expecting slightly, not cheap, but slightly cheaper oil in the future. Well, the future of interest rates certainly seems higher and they just keep going up. And in bonds, we're seeing 10-year yields trading at their highest since 2019. 10-year yields now at 2.37%. The two-year at 2.16%. Many in the market watching to see if that two-year yield ever goes above the yield of the 10-year. That's a so-called inverted yield curve, often seen as a leading recession indicator. We're not there yet. By the way, it had been one of the worst years ever for bonds, not just here, but globally as well. Some of the biggest drops around the world in bonds are happening right now in more than 30 years. In some cases, some bonds are dropping more than we saw in 2008 and 2009 during the financial crisis. Something to watch. All right, speaking of global markets, a sharply higher session in Asia that saw Japan's market rocket 3%. It's on the heels of a more than 7% jump in shares of SoftBank. Hong Kong stocks also largely doing well. So let us see what is happening in Europe with some key headlines in the markets. 
Juliana Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom with that and more. Good morning, Juliana. Brian, good morning. Well, that positive handover from Asia seems to be helping sentiment in Europe. We've got European stocks continuing higher, adding to yesterday's gains. We also saw a rise in bond yields in Europe yesterday, uh, bond yields hitting multi-year highs alongside the rise in equities. So green for the most part for European stocks this morning. Yesterday, the stock 600 ended up about 0.8% higher. Now, it is a big day in the UK, so we're keeping an eye on the FTSE. Currently, it's up about 0.6%. We got some fresh inflation data this morning. UK inflation hitting a 30-year high of 6.2% in February. Now, this afternoon, the fiscal stance from the UK is coming sharply into focus with the Treasury uh, Chancellor due to give an update the UK's fiscal response to this rise in inflation with its spring statement due out later this afternoon. From a sector perspective, this is the picture of how we're trading a couple of hours into the session. At the top of the board, we've got oil and gas up about 1.5%, the clear out Outperformer this morning. We also got some fresh commentary on the energy front from German Chancellor Olaf Scholz saying that the country will end its dependence on Russian energy as soon as possible. Outside of oil and gas, chemicals, basic resources, and healthcare performing well. On the downside, we've got utilities, real estate, and banks underperforming. But as you can see, the losses are fairly limited. The worst performing sector down just 0.6%. Brian, back over to you. Yeah, Julian, I'm not letting you go just yet because you heard those comments from Olaf Scholz saying they're going to end their reliance on Russia, quote, as soon as possible. Uh, I mean, that is a long timeline. We don't know when or if that's possible, do we? We could be talking years from now. Absolutely, Brian. And it's a conversation we're having day after day here. How realistic is it for them to end their dependence on Russian oil, uh, Russian energy more broadly in a timely fashion? The reality is that Europe is incredibly dependent on Russian energy. And for the most part so far, energy has been left out. So clearly it is a controversial point and, and it remains a big open question. What a, what, and what a turn, because for decades, Germany continued to get closer to Russia. The Nord Stream 2 is finished. It is not just open. And now this incredible reversal, decades of policy they're trying to change in a year or two. Truly incredible times. Juliana Tadabam, thank you very much. All right, let's get a check down on some of this morning's other key business headlines here, including a big trade deal between two very old trading partners. Seema Modi is with us today. Glad to see her. And she joins us now. Good morning, Seema. Good to see you, Brian. Good morning. That's right. The U.S. and U.K. are striking a trade deal. They struck that deal late yesterday. As part of the accord, the U.S. will remove import tariffs on British steel and aluminum. Meantime, the U.K. will lift levies on more than $500 million worth of U.S. imports, including whiskey, motorcycles, and tobacco. The agreement follows similar deals signed by the Biden administration in recent months, including those with the EU and Japan, in an effort to mend trade ties strained during the Trump administration. In financial news, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is reportedly facing rare investor criticism over his spending plans. According to the Financial Times, shareholders told Dimon and his leadership team last month that a multi-billion dollar plan to modernize the bank's tech infrastructure and enter the U.K.'s retail banking market lacks sufficient detail, adding, quote, uncertainty is pretty high. The push into the U.K. comes at a time when rival bank City is scaling back its international branch network. 
And shares of GameStop are surging in pre-market. This after a new regulatory filing showed its chairman, Ryan Cohen, just bought another 100,000 shares of the video game retailer yesterday, pushing his ownership to 11.9%, with some 9.1 million shares held. This pre-market move comes after a nearly 30% rally during trade yesterday. Brian? Nice 12% gain there for GameStop. Apparently, as I said at the top, and I'm just going to beat this one into the ground, diamond hands are forever. See what I did there? Well, James Bond. Exactly. No? One of those favorite meme stocks. Yeah. Nope. I hear you. You got it. Yeah, it's, it wasn't good. See, Mamodi, we'll see in a few minutes. Thank you very much. Was it 508? It's never too early for a dad joke. All right, let's get back down to the broader markets. A flattening yield curve, an increasingly hawkish Fed, and the debate raging over the possibility of a recession maybe next year. Two very different takes right here on CNBC yesterday with two very different rationales. Listen. We're not even calling for a recession. You don't need a recession for valuations to normalize. 16 times is a normal multiple given what rate, where rates are and given the setup that we have in front of us from a risk standpoint. So I do not think the risk is better than yours mainly because price is higher. I think we do have a lot of trouble ahead. When it happens, I've told you this many times, on the short term, I don't think anybody can really predict it. I think there's just too many variables in this type of a market. I think there very well could be a recession or even worse. That was Carl Icahn, by the way, who did add that he's got some protection, in other words, investments against any kind of a downturn longer term. Joining us now is Kate Faddis, Grace Capital founder and CEO. Kate, good morning. Uh, Your take on the growing recession, maybe late this year, mid-next year debate. Brian, I'm going to disagree with Carl Icahn on this one. I don't see any recession. Of course, if I say it, it's going to be wrong. The thing I would look to, Brian, is jobs. So long as people are employed, we're not going to see a recession. I'm not concerned about the Fed, um, the yield curve. I think that's largely manipulated by the Fed. So the flattening of the yield curve doesn't concern me. Inflation, I think of as more temporary. So I would be looking at jobs. If people start losing their jobs, that's when I'd start worrying about recession. Okay, some some comforting words there. Does that necessarily, though, mean that the the economy and the stock market, Kate, are very different things? So you're a little more optimistic on the economy. Does that make you optimistic on the macro market for stocks? Uh, On the macro market for stocks, I'm also going to be optimistic on this one. Remember, last time when Janet Yellen raised rates three or four times, the stock market went up 70%. Trump got the credit. But you have to look at what's happening with rates. When rates go up, this attracts funds from Europe and Japan. Look at the dollar a yen uh, exchange rate right now. The Fed announced that they were going to raise uh, rates. The yen weakened. So when rates go up, it's going to attract funds. Ultimately, those funds end up in the stock market. Stock market has been irrational for a long time. What has changed? It's not clear to me that it's going to go down because someone says all of a sudden the multiple should be 16 times. That's been the case for five years. It still goes up. So you're not worried by higher rates, a 10-year, you know, 2.4%, maybe even higher than that in a few weeks or months? 
I'm not worried about higher rates. I think the rate picture is set by the marginal buyer. That used to be you and me. Today, that is the Fed. The Fed is largely dovish. They're concerned about baby boomers. They're concerned about savings. They're not going to let this market go to hell in a handbasket. So I am not concerned. I am concerned about the war in Ukraine. I am concerned about, is this going to spread further? Are we going to get into World War III? Um, how bad is it going to be in Europe? That, that, those are the things that keep me up at night. Yeah. Yeah, as they should, and I think they do all of us. But I, I get to a point, Kate, uh, where you start to say, well, things get too bad. Then talking about market multiples won't matter anyway. So we might as well go ahead and do it. Uh, let's talk about a couple of stocks that you like before we let you go. Uh, trying to sleep at night can be hard for many, even outside the war, due to things like sleep apnea and COPD. Many people, largely uh, middle-aged, sort of overweight men, suffer from sleep apnea, which is one reason you like ResMed. That, that's the reason I like ResMed. So what is sleep apnea and why is it important? So during very deep sleep, which is known as REM sleep, apparently, if you fit this category, your air passages literally collapse. So you wake up coughing several times a night. You don't even realize you're doing it. And this does cause daytime sleepiness, irritability, lack of concentration. But then it also causes depression, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, all kinds of things. So we have an aging population, apparently 25% of the population over age 30 suffers from some form of sleep apnea. Dressable market is 900 wow. million globally. And the company sells a breathing machine and a mask you wear during sleep. It's big, big market, growing company, debt-free, enormous free cash flow margins. The stock is not cheap, has never been cheap, yeah. but I think it's a buy. And unfortunately, obesity, as we know, is literally and figuratively a, a growing problem in the United States. Kate Faddis, optimistic on the economy. Naming RestMed is a stock she likes as well. And Kate, we're glad you're getting up early for us. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Right, right now, folks, we've got some breaking news on that China Eastern Airlines jet that crashed earlier this week. The China Civil Aviation Administration official says one black box has now been found. The Boeing 737-800 was carrying 132 people. Nobody is believed to have survived the plane impacting the ground at what they say is nearly supersonic speeds. But one black box apparently was just recovered. So hopefully we'll get some answers. All right, when we come back here on Worldwide Exchange, mask mandates may be thankfully in the rearview mirror, except, of course, in airports and on planes. But the lingering effects of the pandemic still being felt at small and mid-sized businesses all over the world. We'll get a new report on just that ahead. Your morning RBI laying out some incredible things that may happen in housing that you will want to hear. And later on, what Jamie Dimon is reportedly calling the need for a Marshall Plan for energy security. We've got a lot more to do. Stock futures down a touch. And we're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. 
Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Hi, welcome back and good morning. Even though we talk about big companies and trillion dollar stocks all the time here on CNBC, let us not forget one crucial fact. Small business is the driver of the American economy. Most Americans don't work for big companies. They work for smaller ones, or at least they used to, because a new report says that many small businesses are still facing challenges from the lockdowns of the last couple of years. According to a new report out from Meta and the Small Business Roundtable, 20% of small and medium-sized businesses globally are still reporting closures around the world. That is an increase compared to six months ago. Top concerns include things like cut cash flow, reduced employment, and the continued need for government help that for many has still not arrived. Hard to believe, but true. Joining us now is John Stanford, co-executive director of the Small Business Roundtable. John, good to have you on. I'll remind our viewers this is a global survey. So in a couple of headlines, what is the state of global small business? The state of global small business, and thanks for having me on, Brian, is continued pain. One-fifth of small businesses that were around before the pandemic just aren't open anymore. And we're faced with this crisis that these businesses aren't reopening. I've been on before with some of these reports. This is our ninth, so we've got a good set of data here. And we've seen ups and downs and optimism. But I think around the world, unfortunately, Small businesses are settling into a new reality, and only 80% of them are left standing. And what do they need and what do they want? Obviously, what, they, they're, what they're going to need is more business. Well, that, that's obvious, right? But yeah. is there anything specifically, John, they're asking for that can help them get through what is still, by the way, a very tough time for many of them? Yeah, we talked about that one in five businesses closed. Only a third are showing increased sales year over year, which is very disappointing because that number was more like a half a year ago. And so your your first recommendation is absolutely right. We need more business. We need more activity, which means we need more certainty. And so from policymakers, um, you know, we've got to focus on getting certainty out to businesses that this is a climate and environment where entrepreneurs can ex- succeed. You know, we'd like to see continued supports of certain sectors that have been particularly hit by forced closures um, if we want those to come back. And we also need to make sure that governments are embracing the new reality of business. Forty two percent, nearly half of businesses are making at least a quarter of their revenue online. And that's not just here in the U.S. That's around the world. From a tax standpoint, from a sales standpoint, we're not ready for that. So we got to get ready for that. You know, and it's very different in very many parts of the United States, John. I've traveled extensively in the last two years, and it really is remarkable, not making a judgment either way, but it's remarkable how different certain places are. Midtown Manhattan, an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, one in five businesses is shut down. This goes to your point almost exactly 
Because even if a business is still operating on a Manhattan block, if their neighbors are shut down, it's just kind of a negative, sort of a blight factor almost on the street. So I would imagine even businesses that are still up and running, that never shut down, still need help because of the, the more sort of macro or localized environment around them. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the return to a normal way of life and economic activity. You think of downtowns across the country, Manhattan or elsewhere, if the big businesses that employ tens of thousands of people in a few square blocks, if they remain closed, then that means not just food vendors, which we also think about, but street retail. We can't talk about how important it is not just in the United States, but around the world, what foot traffic yeah. does for businesses. So we've got to get those all reopened and we got to get life back to normal. We will see. There's a big debate about what happens, at least in New York City, probably parts of D.C. as well, and how long that might take. John Stanford, uh, we appreciate you coming on. An important new report. Have a great day, John. Thank you. All right. Also this week, CNBC is looking at equity and opportunity for women. And today, Contessa Brewer takes a look at corporate boards, some of the inroads made by women, and how it is changing how business is done in the gambling mecca of America. The giants of the casino industry dazzle on the Vegas Strip. And in the boardrooms, more of the directors are women. At Sands, at MGM, at Wynn Resorts. When I first came on the board, I was the only woman on the board. That was 2016. Now there are four. Getting there took some growing pains. Pat Mulroy joined Wynn Resorts in 2016 before the scandal that took down founder, chairman and CEO Steve Wynn. In the aftermath, regulators called on board members to explain the lack of oversight. So I was taken by the opportunity of joining this board and making a meaningful difference. One of those regulators, Sandra Douglas Morgan, was chair of the Nevada Gaming Control Board. Now she's just joined the board of Caesars. We want people that are sitting around the table that are making these decisions on behalf of our companies that look like the communities we serve and the customers that we serve. Fellow director Jan Jones Blackhurst knows how to break a glass ceiling. She was the first woman mayor of Las Vegas and at Caesars championed an expensive project to study whether women are treated equitably in the company. She says diverse voices made a difference when women were dropping out of the workforce during COVID. It was because they were entirely overwhelmed. And so when you understand those dynamics, you're able to put in policies and practices that make it a better environment for all employees. But having those voices and different perspectives allow that to happen. Across the street at Wynn, the women board members are making a lasting mark. Starting in May, all the committee chairmen will be women. We've made some very good decisions. I mean, not least of which... In here recently was to pay all our employees during during COVID. That decision, I'm told, paid dividends. When casinos fully reopened, Wynn Resorts tells me it is fully staffed. It didn't have the challenge in hiring people that its competitors across the street, or for that matter, businesses across America have had. And Mulroy says it was really the diversity of perspectives on the board that led to the decision to support the spending even during pandemic closures, Brian. All right, an important story, Contessa. All right, so I know you talked to a lot of people, obviously, for that reporting. Uh, do some of the women directors believe 
in setting actual goals uh, for the percentage of women on boards? Because that is also a hot topic right now, sort of saying we need X percent here to do that. Do they support that? Well, look, a lot of the funds that we're seeing now looking for ESG, they're looking to see, do you have women, not just a token woman on your board, do you have proper, diverse thoughts and voices there? The women I spoke to all said, we want to be recognized for the talent, for the skill, for the experience that we're bringing to the table. We don't want to seat at the table just because we're a woman. However, Jan Jones Blackhurst said, you have to know where you're lacking. So one, you need to know the metrics of your company. You need to know who's in the C-suite, whether there's pay parity, and how people are on this path to leadership roles. Two, you have to set the goals. She was behind this big initiative to have 50-50 women and men in these leadership roles by 2025. And she says the metric is important because what it says is that management is behind it. It's not an HR initiative. It's not uh, just a priority. It is an expectation that women will have a seat at the table. And that makes companies stronger and better performing. An important new report there. Contessa Brewer, um We appreciate getting on, Contessa. Thank you very much, and hope to see you all day here on CNBC, okay? Contessa, thanks. All right. On deck, how the loss of Russian oil could send shockwaves across the entire global economy with some possibly devastating effects. A new report from the Dallas Fed that you will not want to miss. That one, Worldwide Exchange returns with stock futures down a bit as oil rises again. Stick around. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Francis Rivera with your news headlines. Extreme weather and another night of dangerous storms, including a massive tornado in parts of New Orleans and surrounding areas overnight. Our NBC affiliate WDSU in New Orleans captured it moving across the city. According to officials, the town of Araby in St. Bernard Parish was hit hard. Several homes and businesses have been destroyed and at least one person has been killed. And there are reports of multiple injuries and hospitalizations. A pair of high-profile Democrats are battling COVID this morning. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton says she tested positive and is feeling fine despite some mild symptoms. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki also tested positive for COVID, sidelining her on the president's trip abroad today. This is her second case of COVID. She previously caught it in the fall. The world's number one tennis player is going out on top. 
Ash Barty stunned the world, retiring from the sport at age 25, less than two months after winning the Australian Open for her third Grand Slam singles title. In an Instagram post announcing her retirement, she said, it is time to chase other dreams. Those are your news headlines for today. Worldwide Exchange is back right after the break. All right, welcome and welcome back, and good Wednesday morning, everybody. It's about 5.32 in New York. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brian Sullivan. Let's get right now to the markets and your money stock futures. They are down across the board, but not down that much. They're down about two-tenths of a percent on the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ. We are seeing, though, the NASDAQ coming off pretty good strength on Tuesday. In fact, the NASDAQ roaring nearly, what, 2% or whatever it is. So markets kind of all over the place trying to find some kind of trend we're not seeing that right now. Dow futures down about 57. So, again, down very, very lightly. In bonds, though, yields, they are moving in a big way. In fact, yields continue to move higher. Ten-year yields at 2.37%, the highest since 2019, and been rocketing higher. In fact, one of the steepest ever climbs in yields in the last couple of weeks that we have seen in, really, decades. All right, and speaking of bond yields... It is time for an early RBI this morning with all this talk about rates. That's a perfect segue into today's RBI, and it's on real estate because housing. Well, this is shaping up a year that is going to be interesting, to say the least. So many question marks are out there, it's hard to know exactly what is going to happen. But Bank of America has some thoughts, and here are some takeaways from a new report from B of A. Look at this graphic. First of all, Bank of America analysts predict that affordability of home ownership is going to drop, maybe a lot. The median price of a home hitting 4.1 times the median income of an American family last year. That is not only an all-time record, that is even higher than the peak of the epic housing bubble in 2007. And now rates are on the rise. B of A analysts estimate that those rises, along with low inventory and already high prices, could lead to a 25% drop in affordability, right? The other line is existing home sales. And you can see it takes about six months from when affordability begins to drop to where buyers start to bail out of the market. And with affordability on the way down, the point is this. It is easy to see a big drop in home sales this year, except maybe not. We know all that sounds tough for real estate, but we aren't the angels of housing doom, promise. Because what is really random but interesting here is that Bank of America also notes that because rents are rising even more than home prices, at least in many places, it is still a better long-term deal to own rather than rent. So consider this all an epic sign of the times. Housing has never been less affordable to many new buyers. But because rents are even worse, housing looks less bad. You got that? The rent is too darn high, which makes high housing costs apparently okay. Random, but confusing. It's going to be an interesting year for real estate. All right, right now, on a more serious note, more of that breaking news on the China Eastern jet that crashed earlier this week. A China Civil Aviation Administration official says one black box has now been found. That official adding the box was, though, severely damaged. And it is unclear if it was the flight data recorder or the cockpit voice recorder. Remember, there are two boxes per plane. The official says the plane's captain was hired in 2018 
and had 6,700 hours of flying experience, and that air traffic controllers maintain normal communication with the jet after takeoff and just before its rapid descent. The Boeing 737-800 was carrying 132 people and crashed into the ground nearly vertical at supersonic speeds. All right, now let's get back to Seema Modi, who's here with some big headlines happening now, including J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon reportedly issuing a massive energy challenge to President Biden. Seema's back with that and more. Seema, good to see you. Good to see you, Brian. And that's right. According to Axios, Diamond has told the president his administration needs to create a Marshall Plan to develop more domestic gas and energy resources. Axios says the CEO told Biden and his top economic aides during a closed-door meeting with more than a dozen top executives that more gas production is needed both for the U.S. and Europe's energy security and mid-soaring prices. Diamond apparently called for more liquefied natural gas facilities in Europe, reducing reliance on Russian imports and investments in new technology like hydrogen and carbon capture. Microsoft confirming the hacker group behind this week's breach of Okta has also accessed its systems. The company describing that breach by Lapsus as limited following the group's claim it obtained source code for Microsoft's Bing research engine and Cortana voice assistant. Microsoft says its investigations have been tracking the group for weeks. It adds the leaked code is not severe enough to create a risk and that hackers were shut down mid-operation. Shares of Adobe and Focus falling in an extended trade on a disappointing forecast for the current quarter. Brian, the company is citing the impact of halting sales in Russia and Belarus over Russia's invasion of Ukraine for its outlook. A name to watch today. Back to you. Yes, it is. Sima Modi, thank you very much. All right, now speaking of, to the very latest in Russia's invasion, Ukraine's president saying around 100,000 people remain in the besieged city of Mariupol, many without food, water, or medicine. This as President Biden is set to depart for Belgium today to meet with some NATO allies. And NBC News has learned that during the trip, the president could announce the U.S. plans to permanently maintain an increased number of troops deployed in NATO countries that are in the vicinity of Ukraine. Separately, The Wall Street Journal reporting the White House is also preparing a new batch of sanctions. NBC News' Molly Hunter joining us now once again from Lviv with what we know and what is turning into, Molly, just a brutal, slogging and some fear long-term vicious ground war. Long-term being the keyword, I think, there, Brian. Yeah, and we've also just learned this morning that President Zelensky is going to address NATO leaders tomorrow, is our understanding, virtually. Uh, so we should hear another big push for more support from the West. And it sounds like we're expecting that uh, from the U.S., at least. Uh, we have been focused on Mariupol, of course. Uh, and according to President Zelensky, 100,000 people do remain inside. Uh, that's actually less than what we had thought over the weekend, which is good news. That means people are getting out. 7,000 yesterday. Uh, more people today, we understand, in private cars. The humanitarian corridors don't actually go all the way into Mariupol, Brian. You have to get out in private cars, and then that's where the buses will take you to the relative safety of Zaporizhia, where people can board trains out here. The big thing everyone is talking about, though, is the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and you hear a lot of noise from analysts saying we are not giving enough credit uh, to where the Ukrainians are actually holding off uh, the Russians. Now, according to U.K. defense officials this morning, they say Russia is conducting a period of reorganization before resuming a large-scale offensive ominous words, but it does mean that the Ukrainians in some cities can switch from a defense uh, to a counteroffense and really hold off uh, the Russian troops.
NBC's Molly Hunter and Laviv. Uh, Molly, wish we had more time with you. Be well. We'll talk to you again tomorrow, I hope. Thank you. All right, coming up, Axios' with Sarah Fisher on why one formerly buzzy online news company is getting pressure to shut down its news. That is next, but as we head to break, a few other key headlines happening now. The music is back on. Several of Apple's online services are up and running again after suffering outages for a second day. It is still unclear what caused both outages. Starbucks baristas at a location in Seattle have unanimously voted to unionize. It would be a first for the hometown coffee giant, and now the seventh company-owned Starbucks cafe to vote in favor of unionization. And semiconductor CEOs are set to testify before the Senate Commerce Committee today. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger and the CEO of Micron are among the witnesses. The hearing will examine the relationship between American manufacturing, semiconductors, and vulnerabilities in the supply chain. A lot of changes back right after this. All right, welcome back. Shares of BuzzFeed jumping about 7% yesterday on word the digital media company is shrinking its money-losing news organization. In fact, several large shareholders telling CNBC they have urged founder and CEO Jonah Peretti to simply shut down the entire news operation on concern is weighing down on profits. Axios reporting that about one-third of BuzzFeed's 100 news associates have been offered voluntary buyouts. For more on all this, bring in now Sarah Fisher from Axios, been reporting on BuzzFeed's ongoing woes. Uh, Sarah, it's good to have you back on. We are certainly uh, not, uh, you know, not endorsing anything bad happening to anybody in the news business because it's been a rough decade. But it kind of does go to show that no matter how buzzy you are, no matter how hot you may be at one time, making money in online news is a very, very difficult proposition, is it not? Yeah, it's been for a really long time. And I remember, Brian, not so long ago, you had organizations like the New York Times who were still making the majority of their digital money on desktop, even though the majority of their traffic is on mobile. And that's since progressed and has done much better. But it's a good example of how hard it's been for news organizations to monetize their traffic wherever it's coming from in the digital landscape and how hard it has been to wane off of traditional revenue streams, whether that be print or linear TV. Now, in the case of BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed started its news division a long time ago, but it's always been mostly supplemented by the gifts and the memes and the listicles that they do on the entertainment side. The challenge now for BuzzFeed is now that it's a publicly traded company, investors aren't going to sell for any unit that they think is not going to be driving profit is going to be weighing down the company's stock. And unfortunately for BuzzFeed, that unit is news. And so they will continue to face investor pressure until something gets done, something changes. You bring up such a key point, and I'm going to hold up my iPhone because, Sarah, I mean, you know, the younger generation, of course, they are just 100% online using mobile. Your point about the New York Times is fascinating because I don't know about you, but I think I've probably clicked on a mobile ad one time ever. And that was an accident because the ad smartly moved to where my thumb wanted to go. I mean, we've got to figure out and BuzzFeed and not just them, but others have to figure out how to make money off this little device because the ads and that ad business, I got to imagine it is just not there. I don't know what the click through rate is, but 90% of it's probably accidental. There are ways to make money. I mean, I work for a digital news organization. We are definitely mobile first. 
and we're doing okay. The challenge is you have to have a really innovative model and you have to figure out that tough balance between resources and making money. BuzzFeed is a Pulitzer Prize winning organization. They do incredible work. They do investigative work. That's not the type of work that is super easy to monetize in real time. It requires resources up front for an eventual payout later. But there are different things you can do, right? In news, you can explore events, different types of sponsorships. I think the challenge that BuzzFeed faced, they did incredible work on the journalism side in terms of news. Were they side in terms of news? Maybe not have this model where... They actually rely on other divisions to supplement news. Look at Bloomberg. Bloomberg makes $9 billion on the terminal. The media business is not that profitable, but they're okay with the supplement. The challenge here also is that BuzzFeed's investors are not okay with this entertainment coverage supplementing news. That's the bigger problem here. Other divisions, other companies, they are okay with it. Look at ESPN and ABC that have news divisions within Disney. There's been pressure are- to spin those off, but they see the value in it, and it's okay. In BuzzFeed's situation, it's a new company, and investors are not having it. That, that's right. Because Com- NBC News, our parent company Comcast, has the cable TV revenues. I worked for Bloomberg for 12 and a half years, and we used to joke. It was, it was kindly old Uncle Terminal. That paid the bills. The Bloomberg Terminal at whatever it is, 28000 a year per seat now, that covered the cost of the news organization. Uh, if you don't have that, it's a lot tougher as BuzzFeed is finding out. Sarah Fisher, love your reporting. Glad you're there. Sarah, thank you very much. All right, on deck, the new energy shock warning from one Federal Reserve bank you're going to want to hear. Plus, City Stephen Whiting laying out are the central bank's plan to hike rates. Tackle inflation could do more harm than good. All right, welcome back. Let's talk global macro because the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank came out with a big note yesterday highlighting how Russian oil shortages and higher prices may impact the global economy and the move to renewable energy. The Dallas Fed found three possible impacts. First, a slowdown in the move to renewables, particularly in Europe, as they are now racing to blunt the impact of Russia's stranglehold on energy by actually adding to fossil fuel capacity. Two, Another surge in inflation, particularly in food and overall power costs. Natural gas prices are on the rise, slamming things like your power bill and fertilizer costs. And the Dallas Fed's third impact is a seemingly, quote, unavoidable global economic downturn that the Dallas Fed thinks could be worse than that of 1991. Again, this is just the Dallas Fed's opinion, but a pretty tough scenario nonetheless About 8% of the global oil being exported may be impacted in coming weeks and months. So let's dive more into the entire economic story. Joining us now is Stephen Whiting, Chief Global Strategist with City Global Wealth Management. Uh, Stephen, good to have you back on. Uh, Pretty dire outlook there from the Dallas Fed saying they think that a global slowdown is unavoidable. What do you think? Well, look... If you think about Russia and Ukraine as one region in terms of commodity exports, uh, it's clearly one of the largest commodity exporters in the world. Uh, The exact extent of how much uh, exports will be lost in various categories uh, is unclear, uh, but it can have a multi-year impact. You know, think about agriculture, for example. There have been sort of very, very sad 
clear indications uh, that this can lead uh, to crop shortages uh, in big parts of the world. Uh, there's a lot of fungibility in these commodities, and it means they will all rise together. And it's not something that's suddenly the planning season for 2022 uh, is going to resolve. So replacing lost commodity output is going to be a, a big struggle. And it's something that, again, uh, the world needs to do to adjust to this. But just like COVID, uh, again, it's shown the ability to adapt to a change in situation. The world economy showed a very good ability to do that. Uh, and I wouldn't be hopeless around that. Yeah, but like COVID was very different, right? COVID, we had this global problem. The government shut down everything. The Fed threw a bunch of money at things because the government shut it down. We all kind of moved in the same direction. This is totally different, it feels like, Stephen, because on one hand, you've got raging inflation out of control, some of which no doubt is caused by what's going on in Ukraine. But at the same time, a Federal Reserve facing these inflation shocks and, and the real threat of a slowdown and talking about raising rates aggressively. One could almost see a, an environment where they should be talking about cutting rates, not raising them despite inflation. I, I, I can see it both ways. So uh, definitely, Brian, if you just think about this, the Federal Reserve, with all of its new tough talk on inflation, has been doing a QE program into this month, right? So they were easing in a boom last year, and they're going to tighten to a slowdown. We think that this is going to argue for more conservative investment portfolios. Uh, clearly, when you take a look on your screen, it shows the five-year note yield uh, up to 236. Uh, again, that's for all five years. It's not just for the short period of time. Uh, and again, we've reallocated um, quite a bit, uh, again, to these more conservative investments. We think, again, that out of the cyclical industries, the natural resources industries will be the ones that are going to get a very big shift uh, upwards. Yeah. Uh, the demand curve. Uh, but uh, this is a, a very different environment than we were uh, when uh, it was all easy. So again, the Fed's tightening into a slowing economy. Just think yeah. about the powerful case of what's happened with federal spending. It's down 22% this year. That's a different environment than what we had last year when the Fed was easing. What's going to happen with housing? Because I think that's going to be the driver, at least in America, for everything. And housing is, doesn't look good. Well, look, we just had uh, a very big leap in housing related to pandemic shifts. Uh, I do think uh, people will, will sort of argue that the rate impact alone uh, will knock it down. I think some of these shifts to the south in the United States are going to be fairly durable. Uh, but there's a great deal of growth. Again, last year's nearly 6% growth rate, um, a great deal of that will be absent. Uh, and the Federal Reserve a year from now, uh, is going to say, well, wait a second, yep. we tightened into a slowdown. Stephen Wyden, we got to leave it there. I'd like to get you back on again soon because there is so much to talk about, but we unfortunately got to wrap it, but we'll get you back on again soon. Stephen Whiting, thank you very much. Thank you. By the way, speaking of the macro economy, before we go, you're welcome. Be sure to tune in tomorrow with our conversation with billionaire investor Thomas Tull, tackling a lot, including his take on what we just hit on with Stephen, the macro environment, inflation, the war and the investments like figs that he is very excited about. He's one of America's most successful entrepreneurs, literally grew up poor, now owns part of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Hear from him tomorrow right here on Worldwide Exchange. That does it for us here on WEX. We're going to see you tomorrow. Squawk and the Gag picking up your coverage next. Have a great day. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.